Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show brought to you by you. Your questions which power the show each week that I thoroughly enjoy recording. Here we are getting a little bit of an early start, 5.28 p.m. on a somewhat darkish day here in Northern California. Rained in the morning, then again in the afternoon, and it's supposed to come back here shortly. So we need it. I love it. It makes me happy. Going to dive right into your questions after we say thanks as well to Cooper Tires, fine manufacturers of road and off-road tires, and also those kind, amazing folks power the road to Indy. All of the cars in the road to Indy, look at that, like clockwork. The moment I say it's going to start raining, it does start raining. Look at that. Uh, good friends at Cooper Tires. They do so much for us here on the show, but also, more importantly, for all the young talent and teams on the road to Indy. Also, a massive thank you to the Justice Brothers, manufacturers of extremely fine automotive chemicals and lubricants. And then finally, torontomotorsports.com. You're like me, I'm assuming you have a need for motorsports memorabilia. T-shirts, stickers, just models, hats, whatever. Go pay a visit to our pals north of the border, torontomotorsports.com. So going to try something. I don't know if it's new because I've done it before. We're going to try and do a speed episode. Got the little countdown clock going here next to me. That's a first. So I want to see how much we can get through in a limited amount of time. Not going to say how much time because whenever I predict how long I think the show is going to take, as you know, I'm always wrong. So let's do this. Kick things off here talking about the Chris Griffiths memorial test done here at the indianapolis motor speedways road course named in honor of former the late and the truly awesome chris griffiths i didn't know chris super super well but i did get to know him a bit back in the day and some of the last things that i did working in the on the team side of the sport was running indy lights teams and uh, doing some other road to indie stuff and got to know Chris a little bit back then mid 2000s and just a really good guy so so glad that this test has been named in his honor for quite some time and at least once a year everyone congregates to uh, pay tribute to him while testing future stars so our pal Mike Matt 5150 from Reddit opens up the show says hey MP what are your big takeaways from the uh Chris Griffiths Memorial Test this past weekend. In a grander sense, what are your thoughts on the changes coming to Indy Lights for next year? Uh, overall thoughts, really happy to see fairly strong turnout, I would say, across all three layers, all three levels of the road to Indy. Not saying USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000, and Indy Lights were just ridiculously uh, subscribed with so many cars that we couldn't stay on top of them, but there've been a couple where, Oh boy, it made you worry because the car count was not what it needed to be. This in an overarching sense to your first question, just gave me a, a solid feeling that we're going in the right direction, especially knowing how the IndyCar season and the road to Indy season, which just ended uh, basically the beginning of October, so recently finished, can take some time for things to develop. Not saying that everybody who tested is going to be in that same car with the same team 
next season, but it usually takes a little bit more than a month to build enough interest to get new names, get some new deals done. Folks who are at one level wanting to step up to the other and striking the right deal, it can take a little bit longer. So that's what impressed me as well, that in a relatively short amount of time, here we are with pretty darn solid testing grids across all three levels. So, uh, hi, Rose. I don't know if you heard our cat Rose meow, but uh, she's been really vocal lately whenever I'm recording a podcast. So I don't know what that means, but maybe she needs co-billing. Happy would be what I would say, Mike. Happy with how things are going and what they look like at this fairly early stage of the offseason. Uh, as for what's coming to Indy Lights, I do like the direction that Roger Penske told me about. Consolidating a bit, not trying to make every weekend a doubleheader, tripleheader, you name it. I know that for teams, it is easier knowing that you go to one venue and are able to check many race boxes instead of having to go to a bunch of individual events, one race at this place and one race over there. Just It's a little bit easier to know that you're going to do multiple per round. But I do, I do like the general framing of this, though, of, okay, you're not going to get two chances, three chances uh, at this event or that event. I like the pressure that comes from, okay, still going to do a couple of doubleheaders, but by and large, we're not going to throw a ton of races at you per weekend most of the time, and let's see how you deal with that. Could be a counter-argument to that, of course. Hey, isn't this training? Even if it's the top step of the road to Indy, isn't this training? Shouldn't we putting them be putting them on track all the time? I get that. You could also say, well, if you're getting to Indy Lights, doesn't that mean you're kind of senior year of, of university? Aren't you ready to graduate almost? Do we really need to wear you out with education at this point? So, again, a couple ways you could look at it. I do know, and this is just my own experience, having worked way, way, way too many years in Indy Lights uh, in the 90s. Um, it was all single header, not double header. It was run, each weekend was run like you would an IndyCar event, right? You had one, two, I don't know if we ever really had three practice sessions, but a couple practice sessions, qualifying, maybe a warm-up, and then you go race. And it aligned perfectly with what was happening in cart and so by the time you got to cart not only were you familiar with the patterning of the weekend but also you understood the working style hey i don't have all day we're not going to be doing a million sessions so of course the more races you can put a kid through you would think the better i do like the experiment here though just to close on this mic i do like the idea of maybe less is more Maybe if you don't have a lot of, quote, do-overs, oh, boy, I really messed it up on Saturday, but Sunday I'm going to go get... No, hey, you got one shot. And if you don't get it right, well, you're going to suffer. There's, I think, a bit of separation that used to come from this high-intensity format that mirrored what IndyCar was doing. 
So I'll be curious to see how that plays out and if we see drivers who come out of next season possibly ready for IndyCar saying, yeah, I'm good to go. I know that having spoken with Linus Lundqvist today, need to put that story together and file it about his first IndyCar test. Uh, with David Malukas again, he got to test with Penske. Uh, having spoken with Kyle Kirkwood, not after his test today, but the last one or two, all three of them have said the same thing. Indy Lights has done a phenomenal job preparing me for this. We think about Malukas, he's had multiple years of Indy Lights. If we think of Linus and Kyle, single year. So again, it'll be interesting to hear what the 2022 graduates have to say. Some of the first-timers, obviously, may be doing less racing than those who are just coming out of the series. So can't wait to hear what they say if they feel they were fully prepared with fewer races. Our pal Jameen Tuttle. Hey, Jameen says, MP, loved seeing the competitive Indy Lights times at the Chris Griffiths test. Ernie Francis Jr. seemed to adapt quickly. Is he for sure coming to Lights? Um... The team has not announced it. I know they're being somewhat coy about it. I don't fully understand why, but the answer is yes. Everything that I have heard is that they have acquired at least one chassis, if not two, and Force Indy plans on running it. Now, could there be some assistance from another team? That I don't know. I've heard a suggestion that there could be some form of technical alliance with a quality team. I would highly suggest that happening no matter what, just simply because Ernie, while wickedly talented, is trying to overcome <clears throat> a total lack of open wheel experience. He's trying to take this past season uh, running with the Perella Motorsports holding group uh, of open wheel there, getting to learn a little bit, jumping straight into Indy Lights. I know that there's a desire, if he has the, the skills that warrant it, to get him to IndyCar as soon as possible. Instead of waiting five years and getting him the, again, three, four, five years total of open wheel experience, I know that there's a desire to fast track things for him. And so... Also noting that Force Indy had to learn the Tatis USF 2000 chassis and you know, trying to get up to speed on their own to then hopefully give Miles Rowe a chance to be competitive this year, which did happen, again, just took a while. Say the learning curve, understanding the Indy Lights car and really getting to their full strength as a team. That is not time, I would say, that Ernie has to waste. So hopefully they will come up with some sort of technical alliance to make sure that he is uh, certainly uh, ready to go ASAP. Uh, you also said, I noticed that they use the Indy 8-hour layout that skips the fascia cane. Um, is that a safety thing? Seems odd since it isn't the course they'll race on. I wish I had an answer for you, brother, but I don't. Uh, Andrew Miller, you say, is Miles Rowe done or not? We've well, heard that he won't be back with Force Indy, and he wasn't among the folks at the weekend test. So is he now one of those guys whose career is done without a pile of money from someone to find his way back onto the grid? Need to catch up with Miles. I spoke with him right after uh, I learned that he would not be back. 
and need to get an idea from him how things are going because if there's a glaring negative to this change of direction for Force Indy, it's started the team, took this kid with a lot of potential, but he hadn't really raced for two, three, four years. You got a year for him, but nobody going in from Roger Penske on down said or thought, oh, this is a one-year thing. Get this kid a year of USF 2000 and he's ready for the next step or lights or IndyCar. Never, ever, ever was that presented, Andrew, as a thought. It was always Miles is having to bridge a lot of inactivity, get up to speed. We got to get up to speed as a team. He's going to be a two, three, four-year project. Hopefully by year two, year three, at least by the end of year two, we see something where you go, okay, there's something here. Or, love you, tried, we could do a third year, but uh, we don't think you got it. Guarantee, though, you were never going to have enough information to make that call after one year. So I struggle with the call to abandon Miles after one season. Happy that Force Indy is going to Indy Lights. Love the fact that Ernie Francis Jr. is involved. Don't fully comprehend why Miles is one and done. And I know that there's nothing he did uh, on track, off track, or otherwise. There's no backstory or drama of, oh, well, he did this, said this, or, or behaved in this way behind the steering wheel, and that's why. None of that is there. So, yeah, uh, this is one thing that just, I don't know if it's ever going to sit properly with me, Andrew. But I do need to catch up with Miles and find out where he's at, what he needs, and see if there's a way he can be helped. I mean, I obviously don't have any money, but... Um, it's not uncommon for whether it's a journalist, whether it's a driver, whether it's a mechanic, whomever. If you think someone has talent and their their story has ended sooner than it should, it's absolutely normal for folks to say, well, how can I help? Is there someone I can connect you with? Is there uh tell me what it is. So just need to find out from Miles what he needs and how we might be able to get him back on the grid because that kid definitely deserves a year two. Ron Terpstra says, MP, anything you can share about Matthew Brabham in that Indy Lights test? I'd love to see that guy get another shot. I don't. Uh, let me t- let me do this. I'm going to text him now and keep going with the show. Um, and maybe before I end, he will get back to me. Uh, had I seen your question earlier, I probably would have thought to... Uh, uh, ask him and let's go ahead and use a little voice to text thing hey brother comma can you share any insights on how the indie lights test came together last weekend question mark one of my crazy listeners would like to know and i don't period there you go uh okay no crazy misspellings in that and it's off so who knows maybe we'll get an answer back from our boy Matty Brabs. And uh, let's keep rolling here. 
Hope Mills Rats from Reddit, a first-time questionnaire saying, hey, man, this is my first question. I love it. I love it when y'all send in stuff for the first time. I was wondering if anyone won the IndyCar Championship because they won the Indy 500 with its double points system. Also curious, what is your take on whether it was a benefit to the sport or not? Thank you so much. Well, we have kept, um, it's not a, a past tense thing, so it is still a thing, that double points for the Indy 500 win. What has gone away was double points for the season finale which I am thankful for because that never made much sense to me. Um, yeah, I realize being the last race is important, but just slapping double points onto it, whether it was Fontana or Sears Point slash Sonoma Raceway, like meh. So I'm glad that that is no longer the case. I do recall... The one that jumps out the most in terms of it propelling somebody to a title run, and it didn't end up with the championship in hand, but it did end up with a tie, and that was our boy Juan Monterrier. So thinking about our boy Mr. Juan Pablo Montoya, um, he had a pretty darn impressive 2015, right? Uh, came down to a uh, a statistical tie with our man Scott Dixon and can say for sure that his win at the Indy 500 and those double points certainly took what was a very good start to the season. Don't want to make it sound like his double points victory at the 500 uh, asserted him to uh, you know prominence where it wasn't deserved. No. He had a, a very strong start to the 2015 season one to begin at St. Pete. That was a blast. Uh, what, I think he had a couple top fives there to open the season too. I know there was another podium in there, I think at Long Beach. So, I mean, he had a really strong start. I think he was on the podium again at the uh, on the IMS road course, then won the 500. I mean, again, this was, right? This was a really strong opening stanza to the season here. I just pulled it up in front of me, so now I can speak more accurately instead of from memory. So, yeah, he had a bad race at uh, Barber where he finished 14th, but every single finish uh, for the first six rounds except for Barber, he was inside the top five. And actually, two of those were wins, one being the Indy 500. The other two were podiums. So stellar beginning to the season tapered off a little bit following that at Detroit had some more good finishes a couple what two three fourth places uh, had a rough Iowa uh, I think another podium at Pocono here that I'm seeing yeah and without a doubt those double points made it tough and I can say for sure that although Scott Dixon came out on top um, there's also no question that he had a pretty tough task in front of him to chase down Montoya. Um, he had a pretty rough start to the year here, so that's what, what really stands out. So he was seriously in the uh, championship hole coming out of the 500. I mean, he finished fourth, so obviously that's not terrible, but um, had that one win at Long Beach, then got on a bit of a roll, 
um, would say for sure the final race at Sonoma is where all the, uh, the, the tide completely changed where Dixon ended up winning. Um, also I think led the most laps. He earned some extra bonus, extra bonus points. Kind of, sorry, we're done it there. Bonus points. Um, while Montoya was sixth. So yeah, just finishing fifth would have altered JPM's trajectory here, uh, getting him his second IndyCar title. But that's the one that really jumps out as a, ooh, wow. Uh, I think more recently, our man Takuma Sato comes to mind as someone who, while the sustained front-running aspect in the championship didn't necessarily hold the way he had hoped, uh, you know, it's a pretty classic thing. You win the Indy 500, and you jump way the heck up in the standings. And I know that Sato, when he won in 2017, I don't remember exactly how high he moved, but it was serious. And he didn't win again to close out the year and had a, a number of not totally awesome finishes. So he fell back to like eighth or ninth in the standings, maybe. Um, then in 2019, again, I, I think that's that's something else that is certainly uh, a case where had that spike coming out of the 500 with his win there and yeah, petered out just a little bit. Uh, again, not the worst thing in the world, but just wasn't as extra solid as he had hoped. And so, yeah, um, it's an interesting thing, right? I, I don't have any issue against double points for the 500. It's the biggest race of the year, most important race. Get all those things. It's always a little bit strange, though, like this year when Elio won, where we knew for a fact he was not going to be doing the rest of the races. So while it was great to get those double points, did nothing for him or the team that was usable. Uh, let's see, where should we go uh, Andrew Dry Belbis, you actually just sent this in, um, but I just happened to, to flick past Twitter. You said there's no mention of Oliver Askew in your silly season update. What are his prospects for next season and beyond? Uh, the optics of not having your lights, lights champ get legitimate opportunities is beyond frustrating. Add Kirkwood to this frustration as well. I uh, can't agree with you, Andrew. He won... The 2019 Indy Lights Championship was signed, uh, paid money to drive for Air McLaren SP in 2020. It did not go that well. There are some well-chronicled issues, some that were his fault, some of the team's fault. But uh, before those issues, I'm still not sure that the team was planning to hold on to him uh, because I think they wanted to see something different than they did. And that's not necessarily putting blame on him. I'm not sure the team had the right focus on what to expect from him in his rookie year. Also, that team was by no means as good as it is now. So, yeah. Not uh, 2019 was great for Askew. 2020, good as we had this new marriage of McLaren and uh, the S and the P. But they also were trying to figure out a lot of things and didn't necessarily have all their, their stuff together. So, yeah. Uh, then, obviously, he's able to pick up a couple rides this year. But, you know, it's not the first time an Indy Lights champion did not 
really latch on to a team properly and after one year or two was on the way out you know it's we see it in other sports right where the number one number two draft pick you, know, you hope that they become a franchise player and an all-star and a hall of famer doesn't always happen uh, i do think oliver has the talent and potential to be an epically good indycar driver would just say that if we're being honest in 2020 i don't know if he or the team was ready to get the most out of each other and so the outcome while frustrating for those of us like you and me who were cheering for rooting for wanting our indy lights champs to just go 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 all the way up to the top and to win and become a champ it's better than not having a chance at all and back to kaiser yeah, I'll be surprised if somebody does not sign him to a full-time deal. But we are still relatively early in the good old silly season. Uh, let's go to Platy Hooks at Platy Hooks. MP, have you heard anything about Dan Tictum being of interest for one of the, you? I think you meant remaining, you wrote reaming, one of the reaming seats available. That sounds painful. So, uh Based on what I've heard reputationally about Dan Tinktum, Tinktum, sorry, Tinktum. I'm blending his last name with Harry Tinknell for reasons I don't know. Uh, Dan Tinktum, uh, yes, some of his former teams might have wanted to place him on a reaming seat. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you you say he spoke of blowing his F1 dream, <laughs> phrasing, uh, and having interest in IndyCar. You mentioned Stephanie Tindall, uh, Carlin. Uh, that being Trevor Collins' wife, has mentioned Dan would be a great fit for IndyCar. Thanks. Well, I almost feel like I need to read that again because it's just, uh, I amuse myself with my own malapropisms and yours as well. So, Dan Tictum, IndyCar. Have only heard of him being among the seemingly never ending list of folks that fascinate the guy in charge of Rocket. <sighs> It's an intentional exhale. Sometimes when I just exhale, it means I could say a lot more, but I won't. That was one of those kind of exhales. Um, had the conversation with uh, Stephanie Tyndall, the Carlin's husband at Long Beach, and Trev mentioned he thought Dan would be ready and primed for a career reboot in IndyCar. I've never met the guy, can only talk about stuff that I've read and heard and been told by those who don't do know him. And it sounds like, yes, indeed, getting away from Europe and coming here where he is dealt a clean sheet of paper, a fresh, fresh start might be in his best career interest. Trevor also mentioned he's got no money. So that would seem to be a bit of an issue. So if you're not a guy who's coming out of Europe with a high reputation, this person's a future world champion, IndyCar champ, got to have him. Never heard him mentioned as such. Never heard a team owner. Uh, didn't even hear Trev mention. Oh, yeah, this guy would just knock the world down if, if he got over here. But it does sound like he has talent and could be a, a quality driver. Without money, though, and with a non-complimentary Google search 
for any team owner that didn't know him but decided to take a quick look. With money, folks get better looking. Their pasts become fuzzier and less important. Without money, oh boy. So, haven't heard of any other teams with an interest. And if he doesn't have money to bring, it'd have to be a a rocket-type deal of a sponsor that felt he's the next coming of Nigel Mansell. Uh, Bill Potter, AMP, let me preface this by saying, overall, I think an in-depth... In-depth IndyCar series, like Drive to Survive, would be beneficial for the series. But even with that kind of development, does IndyCar risk being perceived as just another, quote, follower in the space? Uh, More importantly, where can IndyCar point to and say, we're the leader in this space as it relates to growing fans? It doesn't appear to be in the external communications, following Formula One and a lagging social media presence, nor racing tech, at least the lack of more manufacturers, seem to indicate this. So what does the series have to tout, Bill asks? The Indy 500, whose crowd dwarfs all others? Access to drivers and teams? There's a lot in there, Bill. I hear you on the, so what if we have a race to survive and we're just changing drive to race and kind of calling it our own? What if it is just a follow-the-leader type deal? Yeah, I don't care. Uh, I I would not care because the only folks doing the judging would be the either hardcore F1 fans or those who came into F1 by way of drive to survive and who would feel a little bit of ownership and trying to protect their territory. Thing is, you can. There's been a lot of different names over the years. Uh, what was it? IndyCar 36, I think. Is that what it was called back in the day on? Geez, I don't even remember whether it was NBC Sports then or if it was still Versus or what it was. But, you know, NASCAR's had that uh, every series, I think, whether it's streaming, uh, a true streaming platform like an Amazon or a Hulu or whatever else, or just good old YouTubes or whatever, Facebook. Just about every series has done a version of Drive to Survive. So for those who are a little bit older and have seen some of these in the past, and there were reality series that were done for a little bit in what, like the early 2000s, mid-2000s? None of these things are truly, truly new. Drive to Survive uh, has done zero that I would say is truly never been seen, never been thought of, never, never, never before. My pal Ralph Hibbard sent a link to Star Racer, which was uh, a little reality show done, again, I think mid-2000s-ish. PT and Danica and others were in it and whatnot. Um, The difference here is the quality and style. And so if it's presented correctly... That, hey, uh, we've been in this space as IndyCar before. We've done this. But, hey, we're doing something brand new for the new decade here. I think you help folks to understand that, okay, you're maybe not just totally ripping off Drive to Survive. But what we've seen here, the power that we have seen demonstrated is this. For those who have an interest in sports, 
for those who love the sport that they follow the most or the one or two that they love most, but maybe have a curiosity to learn about a new sport, Drive to Survive was the perfect vehicle for this. Brought together this glamorous world in a totally behind-the-scenes kind of way. Humanized drivers, but not humanized so we would like them. Humanized in whatever their real personality happens to be. And so if it is insecure... They made sure that you saw this person being their insecure self. If it's being a dick, then you saw that person as being a dick. Uh, if it's an idiot, you saw the person being an idiot. Uh, it just, the clashes, the real stuff, like who doesn't love to learn about something new and engaging and get like all the real insider, both dirt the excellence, the like all the things where you go, wow, like really, this is like you brought me into this brand new world I knew nothing about or very little about. It made me feel like I was sitting in the room as all of these crazy great or crazy bad or off the hinge type stuff took place. The racing, somewhat incidental. That's, I think, a universal thing. But stylistically, the way Drive to Survive is done, if IndyCar were to do something like it but not go down that path, where you go, yeah, I always thought that driver was putting on, I always thought that was an act. Yeah, yeah all right, and then here it is. You, you're, you're revealing the fact that it is. Or this person's a sweetheart. And guess what? They also haven't won a lot. Is there something to that? Is this person lacking that hardcore kill-you-to-win aspect that some of his rivals have or her rivals have? Like Again, it's these things. We try and give them to you in print, write the stories, maybe do a podcast, whatever. We do our best on this side of the media to do it, but through a visual medium? Yeah, so... I don't care about the following side, Bill. I think what's unique about Drive to Survive, it's the process. It's how how they bring it to you and what they bring to you. I don't really want to see drivers at their kids' daycare or camp or whatever. Like That's common. We don't need our drivers to be made common. Oh, yeah, well, hey, we kind of... Uh, you're no different than I am. Why would I? Why would there be any hero worship? Always some form of hero worship or uh, black hat, hate that person. There's always some sort of cheering for or booing against aspect of how Drive to Survive is presented. And man, that's the formula that has worked since drama uh, was invented. Uh, whether it is your real housewives of whatever shows to anything that's on television at night, um, it's the same themes. So, yeah, uh, it's universal stuff, Bill. Uh, so if IndyCar gets into the space, 
Yeah, I'm sure there are going to be some that might say, yeah, this feels a little bit familiar, but I don't care. What I want is for people on. I'm doubting it would be Netflix since they already have Drive to Survive, but if it's Amazon, Apple Plus, Hulu, whatever, it'd probably be Peacock. I realize that, and I don't know how popular that is compared to the others, how many people actually tune in, but there's power here reaching people everywhere in the world. Well, no, actually, I don't think Peacock does. I think it's domestic. Damn it. All right. We need to get folks throughout the world to know about IndyCar and care about it and be able to watch it through streaming platform and present ourselves in the same intensely dramatic way that happens with Drive to Survive. So whatever platform that happens, I can't tell you, but I sure hope it does. Uh, As for the other things... I don't want this to sound like an excuse because it isn't. It's just speaking reality. The money in Formula One is much different than what it is in IndyCar. Not talking about the paddock. I'm talking about the business itself. Formula One as an entity is a zillionaire. I realize that Roger Penske as an individual is extremely wealthy. Roger's money is an IndyCar's money. Roger isn't saying, here's my... ATM card and PIN number, uh, 16th in Georgetown, spend away. Not at all. So the operating budget available to F1 for hiring people, staffing, outside assistance, agency work, this, that, and the other, it's massive in F1 compared to IndyCar. So there is a practical difference. Why isn't IndyCar achieving the same things to the same level as F1. Huge difference in budgets available. So we have to accept that. I'm not concerned about the racing tech side. IndyCar's never been F1 and vice, well, and vice versa. Um, F1's always been the, the open tech series. I mean, there was a point in the late 60s early 70s through about 77, 76, 77, where we could say for sure uh, the average IndyCar contained more technology, more on the engine side, right? When F1 was almost all naturally aspirated Cosworth DFV V8s, realized there were some other, there were some V12s and whatnot in there from Ferrari and so on, but just BRM. But, you know, there was a, cool period where for almost a decade we had these crazy inventive turbo offies and other stuff that was amazing but for the most part f1's always been the kind of open do what you want spend as much as you want go nuts place therefore not concerned about indycar not being at the peak tech there um but it's the things you mentioned here about social presence and engagement where of the money that you have, even though those dollars are shorter than F1s, you got to know that this is where you're going to make a difference. And it's not stupid marketing campaigns. Uh, It is truly hiring the people necessary and investing on the social and the outreach and connection side going, I, we see the series that make a, bigger, stronger effort through social media 
they get returns that sure look like they match whatever they invest. Uh, if you're investing to a lower amount, you're going to get lower returns. It's kind of a thing that's been said for 10 plus years. Social media, it's the new it's the new frontier like it's so old but yes it still works it's still the thing so yeah uh formula one kills pretty much every series with social media um i don't expect indycar to match formula one but i would say aspiring to match formula one would be a heck of a mission statement um that can only help uh, as for what is the signature IndyCar thing, Bill? I ask myself that sometimes as well. We know the racing's great. We know that, again, the access to drivers and all, all these things are amazing, but it's been that way for a while, and it's not resulting in every event is sold out. TV ratings are insane because folks just cannot live their lives unless they watch an IndyCar race. So the things that we know are great and amazing – they're being responded to, but not by a big enough group and not fast enough. So I, I still ask myself the same question. What's the big hook? What's the big draw that's going to get people to care? Obviously, if the answer was out there, uh, it would have been provided and problem solved. Uh, Chase and Akiri, you say, with the series continuing to grow and car counts going up, do you think the current IndyCar point system is the best way forward. For me, awarding a minimum of five points to every single driver in the grid makes the math overly complicated at times. So I realize adopting an F1 point system might be a bit harsh, but do you think reverting back to something similar to the old cart or cart system where only the top 12 receive points or champ car, the top 20 uh, got points, would make it easier for fans to follow? Well... Great question, but I don't know how many fans really follow that closely, Chasen. Obviously, every fan could, uh, whether it's just visiting the IndyCar website or Wikipedia or whatever. You can see the point system and, and whatnot, but I don't know if changing would have any impact on making it easier or harder for fans to follow. I don't think folks pay that close uh, of an attention to who finished 23rd and how many points they got, I would assume there's a, if you're not really in the mix, you're not earning quality points. So eh, like that kind of solves itself. I do like though, and I was a huge fan. I mean, I do remember the formula one days where the top six, if you weren't the top six, you got nothing. And it was hard. It was harsh, but you want to talk about fighting like crazy to be in the top six. I'm not saying you fight less hard if it's the top 10, top 12, whatever. But if you're running 10th and it's going to take some sort of desperation move to get ninth, you know that you've got 10th place points and it's not a massive difference to ninth. I don't know how many folks really go for that crazy pass to try and make it happen. If you're running seventh and you got nothing, <laughs> and the only way you get points is if you get sixth, I got to believe uh, there are no margins left. And 
not that more talent is shown, but more resolve is shown. I do like the idea of there being some form of, nope, sorry, if you're not in the top 15, top half, whatever it is, you know, do, you really, do you really want to be rewarded for that? I know the answer is going to be yes by every team because every team wants points no matter what. They're all worried about make it in, making it, uh, making the cut for leader circle contract. So I get that, but I do like the idea. Maybe it is the top 20. I don't know. If you can't be in the top 20 in a series that's putting, what, 26 cars on the grid, 27, 28 sometimes, if you can't be in the top 20, do you deserve points? I know that just simply... Being in the race, making it two feet, and then crashing when the green flag is thrown. Should you get points for that? Maybe my line of thinking here to close chasing is old. Maybe it aligns with yours. I don't know. But I think of points as a reward. You performed at a unique level. Therefore, you deserve points. Not, hey, you just showed up participation trophies for everyone. So I do wonder if IndyCar would ever start applying points that way. Realize that for a you know championship contender whose motor blows up or gets taken out, they finish last or whatever else. It sucks. It hurts. It's misfortune. Isn't misfortune supposed to sting? Yeah. If if you can get taken out, have a terrible day, make a big mistake on your own, crash out, whatever it is, and you finish 23rd out of 24, should that be a painless thing? I don't know. Um, I do like the idea of it being merit-based. So... Maybe you and I should come up with our own point system, Jason. Uh, let's move on to not Bob Bradley. Well, thank goodness, because I'm telling you, I am tired of Bob Bradley. So thank goodness this is not Bob Bradley from Reddit. Uh, he says, hey, MP, best wishes to you and yours as always. Well, thanks, Bob. Not Bob. Are you Bob? Investigation is following. Uh, says, you have referenced sparingly over the past year or so that Vassar Sullivan wants to expand into being a standalone venture in the next few years. Um, I don't know if it was sparingly. I mean, we did an actual straight-up dedicated interview and article, Bob, not Bob, from, what, two months ago, three months ago, with James Sully Sullivan saying outright, uh, we'd like to do one more year with Dale Coyne and then be fully self-sufficient on our own. But anyways, he says, uh, as mentioned in your latest Silly Season article, David Malukas and Rick Ware uh, see, or the Malukas family and Rick Ware both seem to be in bed with Dale Coyne Racing. I'm glad you added racing to the end of that sentence. Uh, if there are too many cooks in the kitchen there, does Vassar Sullivan join whatever song and dance Carlin and Hunkos are doing? Uh, that seems complicated too. Uh, do they have a chassis or can they buy one and field a team outright next season? It was a really interesting situation. And with Kyle Kirkwood now free game for the rest of the paddock, I'm quite interested to hear you elaborate on what you think may happen there. Says, you the man, MP. Well, that's funny of you to say that, Bob, not Bob, but thank you. All right, let's get into this a little bit. 
also try and be as honest as I can at all times. Uh, can't talk about everything that I know here. Um, I don't know if we're going to see Vassar Sullivan return to Dale Coin Racing. I understand that there's an option. And like you, I am waiting to learn. If I knew they were or weren't, I would have written it. I didn't write it because I don't know if they are staying or not staying. So that I can tell you without a doubt, that is a fact. I don't know. We'll certainly tell you when I do. Do I think their time at coin is certainly winding down? Also knowing they've said they want to wind it down and be a standalone. Yes. Is there going to be room at coin? Could it be a Dale coin with Rick Ware racing with Vassar Sullivan entry for Takuma Sato or a Dale coin racing with HMD with Vassar Sullivan for David Malukas? I don't know. I would have to wonder what value would come from being the third name, the third name on an entry. Um, I mean, it's not my money. It's not my promotional or sponsor appeasement need. Just saying, I don't know if that gets you what you're hoping for, but if there's value that they might find, then, um, I would assume we will see that happen with one or one of the two entries that are coined. If that doesn't happen, I think the Carlin Hunkos thing, I don't know if there's anything there. I do know, and I feel like I'm repeating this for the second or third time, uh, connected Ricardo Hunkos and Sully at Long Beach and uh, Trevor and Sully. I tried to do it at Long Beach. Um, and then didn't realize till a little bit later that because of the really crappy mobile service, uh, cellular service there, it didn't go through. I thought it did. Um, so it was actually, I think a couple days later that I learned like, Oh, it's staring back with a little red, uh, eh, didn't happen. Uh, note in the, uh, little text thing there. So I resent it and it went through and, um, I don't know if they've spoken. I think they have, I- I'm genuinely not remembering, but Try to put some people together there to at least speak. Um, Foyt, I think I wrote, could Foyt be a place? It's the one spot that jumps out to me that could work. Now, that number 14 Chevy that Seb drove, keep in mind that Seb obviously being a former Dale Coyne with Vassar Sullivan driver, still very close and good friends with uh, Sully and uh, Jimmy Vassar. That number 14 Chevy, unless I'm forgetting, I don't really recall any co-entries on it. And it seems like, you know, one of the most famous, if not the most famous entry in the history of IndyCar, right? AJ Foyt's number 14 car. It just doesn't jump out to me like a perfect co-entry named vehicle. Now, could that be in the number 41? Maybe. Um, that's where I might think if something were to come together, that might happen last. Well, I shouldn't say last, but, uh, the main question you have here is, well, why couldn't they just do their own thing? Now they do own a chassis. We know that they bought that years ago. 
do own truck and transporters. They do run a, a factory Lexus IMSA program, have their own shop, have their own staff. Where there's a, a bit of a limitation here, Bob, not Bob, is this Lexus relationship now entering, I think it's third year, fourth year, whatever it is, next season. It's an important one. It's a really, truly important one. Robbing high-quality mechanics and engineers and all kinds of stuff off of the sports car program to then try and run a IndyCar program of their own as well, that would not be a good thing. So I think the, the issue here is just one of timing. That's why they've said, hey, we want to do one more year with a co-entry with Dale. Uh, just in general, we want to do one more year of a co-entry and then try and go out on our own. It's because they need that time. They would need that time to go and find all of the staff, all of the everything, so that they can both run their IMSA program and an IndyCar program without having to borrow from one and destabilize one. Keep in mind, this is a pretty serious thing that they need to keep going, that they have with Lexus. Giving any indicators that they're not taking the sports car side as seriously as they should and having some crew members from there over doing the IndyCar thing. And you know, that's, a, that's something that a manufacturer notices. They might not tell you but they're definitely going to take notice. And when it comes time to re-up a contract or whatever it might be, those are the things where you go, hey, why, how, how did we lose that deal? It's the little things like this that give a manufacturer reason to say, oh, okay, well, uh, we need you to be all in with us, and you've given us the indicators that you aren't. So they know that. Team knows that. They're not going to risk doing that. That's why they're not rushing to get out with their own car for next season. Uh, as for Kirkwood, yeah, I'd love to see Kyle, who drives for Vassar and Sullivan in the endurance races in IMSA, to develop with them. I think that'd be a pretty amazing thing. Just back to the timing issue, I don't see 2022 as the time for that. So thanks, Bob, not Bob. Ed Joris. How you doing, Ed? Uh, this is going to be a, please read the stuff that I post on racer.com. I shouldn't say post. I don't post the content. Please, please read my stories that get posted on racer.com. Uh, you say in the announcement that team Penske was dropping to three cars, a team implied that even if Simon had stayed on, he would not have had a full-time media car gig. Am I reading that right? Can you offer any insights on why they would cut back? Is this related to the cost of participating in the WEC? Is Porsche not funding the Penske LMP2 program? Is one of the team's sponsors cutting back? Will there be a Menards car on the grid? Seems odd to be cutting back when so many others are adding. Uh, so as I wrote, um, uh, this is all coming directly from Roger. This Porsche Penske Motorsports program that debuts in 2023 will be a two-car program in IMSA, two cars in the World Endurance Championship. Uh, it's massive. So, giant. And they're in charge of running the whole thing for Porsche. So, they're setting up a European base, big European base, 
and running the uh, American, the IMSA stuff out of their North, North Carolina shop. Um, they need people and not just any people, but highly skilled sports car familiar folks of which there are many in their IndyCar program. So what they have done is turned off the number 22 Menards sponsored Chevy and applied those people and some others to the preparation for Penske Porsche Penske Motorsports. So didn't have so much to do with Simon. Like, Simon, you're a bad boy. We don't want to play with you anymore. Uh, the offer was for him to go do this factory sports car deal with Porsche. I don't know the amount of races. We could assume at minimum it would be the Indy Road Course, Indy 500. But long story short, which I've written, so again, I urge you to read it. Shutting down the program with the 22 car to push those people over to the IMSA slash, we'll just call it the uh, Porsche factory prototype effort. And with Simon being up for contract or out of contract at the end of the year, Joseph in a multi-year, Will in a multi-year, our man Scott McLaughlin in a multi-year, this was the easy and obvious car to turn off and send those folks that way. It's nothing to do with a lack of money or anything else. It's the exact opposite. This is like an F1 level budget slash commitment from Porsche to Penske. And so everything I just mentioned about Vassar Sullivan needing to make sure that Lexus is happy and sees them giving their all and never having a question about their commitment, like this is truly for Penske an insane commitment. So that's why you don't, Go and hope to find good people. You take the good people you have. There's a lot of people who run just one IndyCar. Um, think about Ben Bretzman, Simon's race engineer for so long. Uh, massive sports car experience, prototype experience, championship winning experience. So up and down. Um, a lot of good folks here who've been uh, appropriated to Porsche land. Uh, Hitoroki too. How you doing, Hitoroki? It's been a while. And I, I also realize I'm, I think I've mispronounced your screen name, if not that being your real name, pretty much forever. Hitokiri too. I think I've said Hitoriki forever. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot, but you know that. Uh, Hitokiri too. So Joseph Newgarden suggested that IndyCar may have to take another look at adding power steering, some form of steering assist, um, onto the cars due to the increasing weight that's coming with a hybrid system and whatnot. Do you agree with this? Uh, well, I don't drive the cars, so it wouldn't be my opinion holding any weight compared to Joseph Newgarden's. I do know that there is a bit of macho bravado, testerano, estrogen, whatever it might be. Some sort of, hey, uh, these things are tough, tough to drive, physical to drive, especially on the road and street courses. Uh, it's not as if Iowa is a breeze. So even, you know, a short bull ring banked oval can beat you up pretty darn good. But I think there's going to be a, a consideration for sure to see what the, the weight of 
the cars with the new kinetic energy recovery system, what that turns out to be. And so if just the curb weight, just forget the with downforce applied, if the overall vehicle is just significantly heavier than what it is, which we know they're going to be heavier for sure, um, maybe that's something to think about. Maybe there is a threshold coming up. Great question to ask uh, the series, which I will try and do here shortly. Um, I think without a doubt, it needs to be something that they consider. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I would expect there to be ample downforce with the next chassis. Can't tell you if there's going to be an increase in downforce to compensate help the car with its road holding capabilities if the curb weight's gone up and it's a little bit more of a, uh, a wild beast to uh, keep under you. But I think there's something here for sure. So again, I don't doubt what Joseph is saying at all. Just saying, I, I think instead of it being an automatic, I do think that this could be a point where with more static weight, possibly more downforce being piled on as well. Who knows if we might be going to wider tires, more grip. I don't know these things. Again, who knows what it's going to be uh, when we get to a, a all-new chassis, all-new everything. Could that be the tipping point? Very possibly. That brings uh, power steering into uh, the old mix here. Okay. Hey, Ryan Terpstra. Just got a text back from our man, Matty Brabs. Let's see. Uh, hard to explain. Ha ha. I've honestly been meaning to reach out to you and fill you in on everything and give you a heads up. Uh, but I was under strict orders to tell no one, uh, before the test about the test. Well, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I guess the story is I've always had a great relationship with Andretti. He wanted to throw me in and start working together again, trying to put together something for next year. Well, that's awesome. Um, I love the idea of Matty Brabs possibly being involved with Andretti. However, um, I'm aware of one or maybe two opportunities. I don't know if those are IndyCar related, but regardless, um, whatever it might be, I've been pretty darn vocal along with Dario and I think a few others about Matty Brabs. This is someone who his talent is being wasted in anything less than the fastest open wheel car or sports prototype or similar so uh i love the idea of rekindling that relationship with andretti and seeing where it might go so there you go ryan terpstra we got an answer asked in the show and answered i feel like we've achieved something uh sean price says all the best to you your wife and the cats look at that thank you sean in the past alcohol and tobacco companies accounted for a substantial portion of racing sponsorship says do you foresee another industry ever playing that big of a role i mean i have to imagine the answer is yes sean i just don't know what it is and i say that because who would have predicted in the 1950s that tobacco company well that sponsorship would become a thing but more than that that tobacco companies would rule racing for a long time or beer companies or tech companies right there was a period where seemingly every web browser slash internet access company 
was sponsoring something. The Northern Lights Indie Racing League. Anyone remember Northern Lights uh, as an ISP, internet service provider and whatnot? Like, I don't know. I mean, I was there when they were the title sponsor, but I don't know if I ever went to their site more than once just to see what the heck they thought they were. Um, you know, booze, alcohol, right? There was a time where it seemed like not just beer, you know, obviously that's been a big thing too, right? So just working through the industries, but you know, there was a point where we had beer, then hard liquor, right? From this whiskey to that thing there, whatever. I don't know if we've ever seen wine really take off. I don't know if that's a good fit, but um, what have we seen? We've seen online job search and finding companies. Kind of, there was a rush of that. So it seemed like anyone and everyone that had some sort of online service there got in. I don't know. I'm sure there is an industry. I know that folks keep saying, I'm surprised cbd hasn't taken off or medical marijuana or whatever else and you know not every series is welcoming of all industries that's a little bit weird but i'm sure we will i just don't know what it is and i know you said any guesses i don't know i mean i i it's two things it's either promotional value that gets sponsors come running or a perfect fit. Hi, your racing series does something from a tech standpoint that aligns with what we're doing, where we're going, and all of a sudden a bunch of tech companies that do whatever it might be um, come flooding in. We're hoping that by going hybrid here shortly, the IndyCar will give some new tech-related industries a reason to come in and get involved. Will they write rules that allow that to happen? Or is everything going to be 100% spec? And then there's no reason for a variety of companies in the electric vehicle space, whether it's software or the mechanical side or the whatever it might be, to say, well cool but eh, there's no reason for us to come here and develop and promote uh so we're out so again it's either promotional value or good fit but the backside to that the side that often makes us a little bit grumpy sean is the did you write the rules to allow those companies to want to come and play and know that they would have a, a real value they could get that they could promote this properly right Hey, if you have a big company, or if you have a company that's, I'm sorry, that's doing big things in the EV space, and we have a 1,000% spec curve systems that those EV companies can't touch, would any of them spend money to put their branding on a car when they can't say, yeah, we got anything to do with it? We have nothing whatsoever. So that's, again, that's down to the series to give companies a reason then maybe we'll find out what that uh, new or those new industries might be. Let's see, where do we go here? So we start to wind down. Uh, Stephen Dutton says, Hey, MP, hope everything's well with the family. Thanks, man. Uh, so I remember watching the old cart broadcast as a kid, and they used to do a segment, I believe they called Track Facts. 
uh, where they would use a cutaway car and explain how a part works and how it benefit or hinder a certain driver. I was thinking that could help newer fans understand and learn why a team is doing what they did. Amen, Brother Steven. So I think the track facts were more of a, a across-the-board ESPN thing where whether it was CART or IMSA, recall F1 so much, but maybe NASCAR, it's kind of a general approach. So yeah, let's take you in, show you stuff, teach you stuff. Can't tell you if it's going to happen, but I really hope that it will. But one of the things that I am wanting to do, Racer is wanting to do uh, next season, and if we have the video support that would be needed, one thing that I know is true is that while I am capable of writing, photographing, and videoing, (laughs) doing all my own work there uh, at the track, especially when we start to get into the video stuff, like it just, it takes a lot of time. It's a big time sink. So that takes away from being able to do the other stuff. So if we are able to secure the right support, uh, I, I, and we want to do something almost exactly like what you mentioned. So beyond the kind of end of day hamburger and French fry video or hamburger and whatever video, um, these kinds of things. Hey, let's go into the garage and I want to show you camber shims. You may know what they are, but let me show them to you anyways. And let me show you how they're secured. And let's talk to the crew chief and find out why at some tracks they come loose. Almost every year, like clockwork, same track, one or two drivers for sure are going to have camber shims come loose, usually at this corner of the car. Let's go do that. And now let's go over here, and I want to show you how this works. I've done, can't tell you how many of these over the years. It just has been a little while since I've done them. So used to do a ton, just far less of late. I really do want to do more of that. And I know that I tried to start picking that up over the last couple races of the year, Stephen, just using my dumb little iPhone of seeing something in the paddock, going, oh, hey, let me show you that thing you might not have seen before or on pit lane. I think I have four or five of those that I, I don't want to say shot. Come on, man. It was like me hitting the record button for two minutes, Um, but captured at least that are still sitting on my phone that I need to uh, get off and push those out here during the off season. But yeah, I'm with you. More of that stuff for sure. And so haven't fully formed it. Definitely something that uh, I need to make happen because I know that's one of the things that's fairly unique to me, uh, at least in my role these days of having been a former mechanic and engineering guy, uh, going and talking about this stuff, which I used to do a lot. Um, Need to get back to that. Uh, Always noting the fact, Stephen, that there are new fans to the sport every day who don't know or care about what I used to do and only care about what I'm going to do next and others will do next to inform them. Uh, Lance Snyder says, last week during your unpolished turn of a show, you combined Simon Pagano and Will Power into Will Simon. Uh, if you could combine the two individuals into one, how would it go? Would he speak French in an Australian accent? Speak Australian in a French accent? Crepes on the Barbie, possibly. Well, it's news to me, Lance Snyder, that I said something inaccurate on a show. That's never happened before. <laughs> uh, wow, all right. Well, so I combined the two of them. I will mention, random aside here, that I was looking through 
I forget what might've been a program or might've just been an old magazine from the late nineties, early two thousands. And I did note the oddly named sports car driver, Norman Simon, who I believe I should even check this cause I'm probably going to get this wrong, but was he Brazilian? Let me, I'm just typing it in right now. Uh, Everybody that I seem to recall thought that, no, totally wrong. Um, I think he's German. Yes, Norman Simon. Um, Totally misunderstood where he came from because he had such a generic name. So I like the fact that I came up with uh, another non-name here. Uh, It's more kind of a witness relocation name of Will Simon. Like, no one would remember that. It's the most forgettable name ever. Right after Norman Simon, um, a guy with maybe his last name first and his first name last, or we don't even know. Uh, But, yeah, where do you come from? I just remember that being that guy's thing of, we're not sure you're a real person because that name is just, it's so made up. So, yeah, uh, as for this really disturbing Australian-Franco-whatever combination, uh, Antipodian-Frankian, a uh, guy from Frankia, um, how, how would it speak? <sighs> poorly. That's how it would speak, poorly. Um do you guys remember from the Who the Hell Are You series that I did when Simon mentioned, along with some buddies, finding something like a thousand adult magazines and that they kept them? That still sticks with me as a, like, that's, that's wow. I don't know if I've ever reconciled that, that that, that actually happened and he told us about it. Like a thousand porno mags? Come on, man. Anyways, uh, yeah, maybe I'll combine more drivers' names. Um, Power doesn't seem like he could cook. We know that Pagano has a passion for cooking. I assume he's good at it. With the amount of time he talks about it and has spent doing it, I would have to assume he's good at it. But yeah, I think we might have to put that to the test. So anyways, thanks for pointing out uh, my ongoing stupidity. And I can confirm that, yes, indeed, it's going to keep happening. Uh, let's see. I, I, Lemure. I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but hey. Uh, for a layman like me, I'm completely blank in understanding when the drivers were saying the Ed Carpenter cars were so well put together, the body fit is amazing, etc. Uh, during the 8500. What are the physical differences they're talking about when they mean better? And what makes it so difficult to replicate for other teams? Awesome question here. I.I. Lemure or I.I. Lemur. If you think of all of the bodywork seams on an Indy car, since the bodywork needs to go on and off, those little seams of how, let's say, the side pods fit to their mounting spots on the chassis and to the floor. Because they come on and off regularly at 
pretty much every non-super speedway event, teams don't take a crazy amount of time to try and fill in any little gaps in those seams so that when the bodywork is installed, all the gaps are flush, non-existent. The, the two pieces come together and form, call it an airtight, absolutely airtight bond. You don't see that when we get to the road and street courses because the bodywork comes on and off so frequently. And then also, frankly, there's routine contact there so often that it would be a vast waste of time knowing that again road and street course body work can be a little bit more disposable also since we're not talking about a huge oval where it's as much of an aerodynamic exercise as it is a horsepower exercise there's no massive value in trying to perfect the body fit and remove every little gap in those seams. So there are no seams, almost like it's flush. Um, There's no real value to doing that because you're not really going to get, you're not going to get enough value out of it to make it worth your while to put in that time. But at the Indy 500, at a Pocono when we used to go there, or if we were to go to another two-plus-mile super speedway, there is enough value. Uh, sometimes said to be one mile an hour, maybe even a little bit more than a one mile an hour advantage between a car with a perfect body fit, one that when the bodywork goes on, it locks into place, like I said, almost like it's perfectly flush um, compared to one that isn't quite as well assembled and has some gaps where the air can come in between the floor and the side pod or the engine cover and the side pod or the the damper cover uh, up front and the tub or 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 all these little things just fitting the floor itself fitting the uh, the underwing to the car can take a really long time to get everything perfected you think of all the little imperfections where a team has not spent the time to make the body fit perfectly no seams or almost no seams to a team that's done as best as they could or wanted to but didn't go totally insane in making it perfect that's why you can say well hey wait a minute this team is really good as a really good driver and uses a whatever engine And the team right next to them, also really good, really good driver and the same engine. There's a one mile an hour difference, two mile an hour difference in their lap speeds. Of course, chassis setup could be part of that for sure. It's also something like this where you go, aha, that's a problem. The best example of this being real is when you have somebody crash in practice, especially the smaller teams. Smaller teams will have one car that has had a body fit done, and if that thing gets crashed, they will roll out a backup car, do their darndest, but you're going to almost always notice there's a one, two, three mile an hour drop in average speed. Some other factors that could be part of it too, but this is almost always one of those factors. Ah, it doesn't have a real body fit done to it. So 
It's just the difference here between a lot of small little imperfections that add up. They're little miniature tiny parachutes where the air gets trapped in a gap and that's drag and it slows it down. And that little pocket that that happens on the little space here isn't enough to bring the overall speed down. It's 20 of those, 10 of those, 30 of those. Just again, all these little things add up to uh, enough additional drag the car is just going to be slower than the next you can tell by the way and this is a thing to observe if you're there for practice or if you're watching at home and the uh the cameras happen to catch it or zoom in it's pretty easy to tell those who have gone totally insane on their body fit and that's when they go to remove a side pod for example or the engine cover any other race you'll see them pop little cam locks and off the thing comes the 500 you hear bang 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 and they're pounding and hitting and having to be pretty darn abusive to the bodywork because it is locked in place there are no gaps and again these gaps that exist at all the other tracks not a real everyone allows them therefore everyone's at the same deficit but those little gaps also help to get the body work on and off you can tell who's done an amazing job of the 500 because they almost get into a fist fight and have to beat up the body work to try and break that seal because there's just no wiggle room uh in how those gaps come together and then you know the the conversely you can also see them having to beat the heck out of the body work to try and get it back on because there's just no little room to slide in here or there. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Bob Gravel says, what do you think about YouTuber Casey Putch coming to IndyPro 2000? And I don't know if it's Putch or Putch or what. I apologize. Uh, I've thought for a while that someone like him uh, that will show a ton of behind the scenes and YouTube stuff uh, could be very interesting and drum up interest in the series and hopefully the road to Indy as a whole. Your opinion interests me greatly. Oh, Bob, come on, man. As well, uh, as ever, well wishes to you and your wife. Don't know Casey. Know of him. think I've watched one video someone pointed me towards. Heard about him coming to IndyPro 2000. I don't know any more than that. So what I'll need to do is make an effort, hopefully to remember, to take a look and learn a little bit more. I don't know if he has skill I don't know if he has adequate training in other racing forms. Clueless. So is this an indicator that I really don't spend a lot of time uh, looking at things that aren't work-related and whatnot? Yes. Uh, I don't know if this is an excuse, Bob. Maybe it is. If it's not truly work and or something close to that if it isn't a link to a amusing cat video or dog video or animal video in general that my wife has sent me uh or something that interests she and i i'm probably going to be almost blind and definitely ignorant to whatever it is um i do look forward to a point in time in the future where she and i have enough of our 
former lives back to where we can do things like spend a Saturday morning watching hours of Casey's content so that when you or others ask a question like this, I can know what you're talking about uh, in more than the most general sense. So apologize, man. Uh, I hope to have an opinion that would be of value. I just don't have one right now. So my ignorance and my apologies, Bob. Uh, Hire Lee. You are getting us down to pretty close to the finish line here. MP, what do the testing rules say on drivers like Nico Hulkenberg or Stoffel Van Dorn testing for a team? Are they exempt from the uh, four private tests a year rule? A little bit. So IndyCar has an evaluation thing, and that allows drivers who aren't familiar to IndyCar IndyCar isn't familiar to them to come in and uh, get a test, get a little bit of mileage and not have that count against the teams. Call it racing tests, right? Those, those limited number of private tests, they're not meant to be farted away on someone just, you know, wanting to see if they like it or not. So I don't know if there's going to be a substantial change to this hire, but I do know that there is an effort afoot by a few teams saying to IndyCar, hey, uh, we'd like to do some more evaluations. How do we make that possible? How can you help us there? A slight undercurrent here too. If it can be done, if you can do more of these evaluation tests, these could be decent money makers for teams, especially the ones that need that money. And there are some, at least half, could really benefit from having the ability to go do however many test days. I'm not saying a crazy amount uh, to give them an advantage over teams that don't need it, don't need the money, don't need to get paid to run test drive or to to do tests for drivers. Sorry, y'all, tripping over my words here. There are some that wouldn't need to do that, but would say, well, hey, if our rival over here is getting three or four extra test days because they're quote evaluation days and we don't have anyone we need to evaluate and we don't have anyone paying us to do this. Do we need to drum up someone to evaluate and pay out of our own pockets so we aren't behind on testing and, and they're learning more than we are. It's a little bit complicated there, but I think there could be value for sure to open this up to allow teams a little bit more latitude to do things like this to run a Van Dorn, run a whomever, without it counting against them uh, for, you know, the, call it the racing test, the limited numbers that they do have. Joshua Barrett, you are the last question above the, uh, the good old line of death provided by our pal, person who puts together the questions, the fine man that is Jim Kaiser. Josh says, not a question, but want to congratulate Team USA Scholars. Max Easterson and Andre Castro on a double podium at the Formula Ford Festival in an incredibly competitive final. Same here, Josh. Love uh, that you sent this in. Team USA, the Team USA scholarship run by Jeremy Shaw, the patron saint of junior open wheel racing in America. It was great to see them. They were strong the whole time. Max in particular, great to see them finish second and third. Um, Yeah, it's an important thing. This Team USA scholarship, sending young talent over to 
pay their dues, learn, and hopefully represent the country well. The annual uh, Walter Hayes Festival in the UK, Brands Hatch. It's just, you know, it's part of us. This is now, what, 31st year, I think, for the Team USA Scholarship. Uh, There are a number of supporters of it. Racer Magazine's been there for, I think, ever. Chip Ganassi Racing, a lot of companies, whether it's tires, brakes, oils, there's been many over the years, but glad to see it's still going strong. And to your point, definite, definitely happy to see Max and Andre do well. Think about their predecessors, whether it's a Kyle Kirkwood, whether it's a Connor Daly, a Joseph Newgarden, Brian Herta. Yes, Colton's dad <laughs> was a scholarship winner. Jimmy Vassar, I believe the first. Um, pretty fine tradition here. Take a look at a couple of the uh, the ones below the line here, since we've got a couple minutes, and uh, I am trying now that we've almost succeeded. Uh, trying to cut our off season uh, weekend IndyCar listener Q and As to about an hour and a half. So uh, let's go to Uncle Bobby's Turkey. You sent this in, I think, last week, maybe even the week before. He said there's been some discussion about Mercedes Formula One stalling their rear diffuser on long straights. Do IndyCar teams do this? Um, little technical note there's only a rear diffuser there's no front diffuser so uh, no need to call out the location of the diffuser there uncle bobby's turkey uh it's just the diffuser uh do any car teams do this have they ever wasn't sure what the spec nature of the suspension if it's possible uh and if so is it worth it you get a version of this during the indy 500 and you will hear it during qualifying simulations and during qualifying you hear it over the radio and that is using the weight jacker it's a little hydraulic ram placed at the uh on the rear of the car on one of the uh, damper and spring combos and that little hydraulic ram can either compress or elongate and when it compresses it lowers the ride height And what that does is basically squat the rear of the car on the straights to reduce the underbody downforce production. So I don't know if stalling the diffuser gets achieved, but it definitely breaks some of the seal and reduces the efficiency in terms of downforce efficiency of being made beneath the car reduce the unnecessary downforce in a straight line it's kind of using uh drs if you want to call it that but one that is actually driver manipulated by hitting the weight jacker to allow the back of the car to basically sit down a little bit lift the the floor of the car up towards the front reduce the downforce being made beneath it and as they get close to the corner they will undo that basically put the rear ride height back where it's supposed to be sets the car in terms of the the platform being stable they turn in go through say turn three short shoot turn four exiting turn four hit the button again sit the back of the car down off you go so that's about the closest that i know of that we have seen uh in any car of late uh, let's see, James Malloy, hey, MP. Um, how do you see things playing out with Carl and Racing? Do they end up with their second car? Uh, does that second car end up being a Hunko's Hollinger entry? Did they pull out of any car? Uh, do they sell the assets to Hunko's? 
Great questions, James. Don't have answers to all of it. I know that, uh, as I've learned and confirmed and wrote about, yes, they have been talking about what kind of collaboration. I don't know how that's going to pan out. I know there's a desire on the Hunkos Hollinger side to acquire more assets. So if by chance Carlin Racing decides that's the best thing to sell assets and step away, that's their call. Uh, reached out to them and didn't hear back. Is it a sell and still co-enter type thing? Is it a keep and co-enter? Is it a, we're going to run our own thing. We're going to decide to not have any collaboration. I'd say all those options exist. What does that mean for Max Chilton? Does he have money behind him to continue? If not Max, then who? Again, this is, I think we're going to have a resolution on this, James, quickly. I don't know exactly what it looks like when it's done, though. My hope, as I've written, is that we have Carlin in the series forever. Uh, They're, to me at least, very important. Um, But I don't know. I know that in the interview that my racer colleague Mark Lendenning did with Trevor at Long Beach, which ran a week or two or however many weeks recently, um, Trev was straight up and saying, look, you know, we want to keep going, but we need the money to be right and we don't have forever to hang around. And, you know, so I'd say if it's not a Hunkos Hollinger collaboration, I don't know what we have here. I would say that there'd be no discussion about a possible collaboration in whatever it is, uh, in name only contributing assets. It's a true 50, 50 split on a second car. Again, you wouldn't be having those conversations if you had everything you needed to keep going as you were. That's the thing that's driving my, I hope everything works out okay here, but when you start having these conversations, it tells you that all is not everything that it needs to be. Uh, Let's see. Todd Hudson. Connor doesn't stay with ECR. Do you see him still in the series next year? Possibly. Uh, Says, I know didn't have the best year. I think one could argue his unique personality is a positive for the series, especially if they do a docu-series. Totally agree and totally agree. Unfortunately, IndyCar is not paying drivers to be in the series. Do I think that if the ECR thing doesn't work out, could he land somewhere else? Well, if it doesn't work out at ECR, um, I don't know if he'd be going somewhere else with Air Force budget. So it would require finding additional money, new money, for him to do that. Uh, mentioning the Hunkos Hollinger thing and their desire for a second car and wanting to have a bit of a veteran so that Callum Eilat isn't having to be a true babe in the woods everywhere he go, almost everywhere he goes next year. If it's not ECR, I think Hunkos Hollinger, second entry, if Connor can drum up a little bit of money, I think that's a great fit. Also, obviously, I don't know, he has a long-standing relationship and a very successful and winning relationship with Hunkos on the road to Indy. So that's where I'd love to see him go if the ECR thing doesn't pan out. Buddy Campbell, you're going to close our show, my friend. Marshall, are there any plans to bring the Freedom 100 back? Or is it dead and gone? Always a good race to watch, and I think prepared future drivers for the Speedway. Oh, I would say it was more than a good race, my friend. I would say, buddy, that it was often the best race during the month of May. Uh, no. 
It's not coming back. I know for a fact it is not coming back. Roger Penske does not want Indy Lights drivers competing on the super speedway at Indianapolis anymore. That's why it hasn't happened and won't be happening again. Uh, I apologize. I'm forgetting the driver's name, but whomever it was at the last freedom 100 who had that giant crash, maybe it was the year before that basically broke the car in half. I think it was a USAC driver. Maybe I think that really struck and stuck with RP. Um, and he does not want that to happen on his watch. Uh, so, yeah. <sighs> Unless something were to change in terms of we get to a point in the true future, not like year two from now, but like way a little further down the road, where whatever it is, the 2025 new IndyCar chassis, 27, I don't know what it is. But if we get to a point, buddy, where... The next Indy car chassis doubles as the new Indy lights chassis. And so from a safety standpoint, you can say, although it's less power and less speed and whatnot, this Indy lights chassis is 100% Indy car spec in terms of safety. That's the only way I could see the Freedom 100 coming back. As long as it's separate cars, separate everything. Um... I don't think that's going to be the case. All right, y'all. This is our week in IndyCar for November 1st. Thank you for sending everything in. I don't know who our guest is going to be. Part of me thinks I need to have our pal Willie T. Ribs on. Uh, part of me is curious to have Alexander Rossi on. Um, I wonder, because I don't know. I haven't asked, but will we ever get to talk to Colton Hurt again? Um, <laughs> who are we going to get to talk to? I don't know. But we'll find someone fun. If you've got any ideas, send them in, and uh, maybe I can accommodate. Nonetheless, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Your week in IndyCar listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. We'll speak to you very soon. 